KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Voting rights have been in the headlines for months. Many states pushing or have already passed new laws regarding the right to vote. And there's a recent Supreme Court ruling that we found interesting out of Arizona for the effect it could have on people being able to cast ballots. We wanted to talk about Brnovich versus the DNC and really voting rights altogether. So we reached out to Dr. Susan Liebel. She is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. This is a really great conversation. Give a listen. So to start this case, Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee, what was on the table here? Kind of explain what this was all about. So there were two laws from Arizona. The first one said that any voter who voted in the wrong precinct had their entire ballot voided, including any votes for statewide or national elections such that the precinct wouldn't matter. And the six justices in the majority, with Justice Alito writing for them, said that the out-of-precinct policy didn't have a substantial or a disproportionate impact on minority voters because only 1% of Native American, Hispanic, and African-American voters had their ballots voided as compared to 0.5% of white voters. So he said, you know, if the voting works for 98%, it, it has a small impact in absolute terms. And then there is a second law, which is if you vote by mail, Arizona makes it a felony for a person other than a postal worker, election official, or your caretaker or household member to collect a completed ballot. And and this law was also found constitutional by the six conservative justices, Thomas Alito, uh, Gorsuch, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett, because they claimed it was unlikely to cause a, a meaningful inequality in minority voters' electoral opportunities, and also that the legislature hadn't intended to discriminate. So they emphasized that. Um, they said, you know, the legislature could act to prevent election fraud, even though Alito said there had been no evidence of ballot fraud um, in Arizona. What did the liberals say in dissent? So Justice Kagan wrote in dissent, and I just want to say she's positioned herself as a mediator, you know, somebody who would compromise with conservatives to prevent ideological or partisan splits when possible. But here she is strident. She accuses the majority of ignoring the context of voter suppression in the United States, of overturning the will of three different Congresses, like a form of judicial activism, although she doesn't use that term, and ignoring what she calls the facts on the ground. So she would have found the law that avoided out of precinct voting unconstitutional because Native American, Blacks, and Latinx voters are twice as likely to have their votes canceled. They're also 30% more likely to have their precinct changed than white voters. So Alito said that the absolute numbers were small, But Kagan insists absolute numbers hide the impact because minority voters are twice as likely to have their ballots thrown out and she provides lots of data and also shows how Arizona is a complete outlier. In 2012, a third of the ballots cast in the United States that were thrown out, they were from Arizona. So on the second law, she says, look, only 18% of Native American voters in rural counties actually have home delivery compared to 86% of whites. And she says most of them have to travel between 45 and two hours just to get to a mailbox. And a lot of them don't have cars between a quarter and a half. So getting ballots by mail and sending them back actually does pose a serious challenge for Arizona's rural Native Americans. And, you know, Kagan said that 
Alito takes this really ambitious language of the Voting Rights Act and interprets it narrowly. She called it a cramped reading of broad language. And she said that basically the majority refused to enforce a really far-reaching statute, one that was the will of three different Congresses and the people, and that they imposed their own, what she called cramped uh, interpretation. And she provided lots of data and lots of history the dissent is much longer um, and much more Im- impassioned than the, the majority opinion. And this is not the first time that the, the Roberts court has gone to work, shall we say, on the Voting Rights Act. No, not at all. Uh, in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder, a case with another impassioned uh, dissent, but this time written by Justice Ginsburg. And Justice Ginsburg is missed here. This would be a 5-4 if uh, she had been, uh, if, if, if she were still on the court. And, and that one also allowed more leeway in the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act was all about enforcement and all about 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 knowing that legislatures don't declare their intent to discriminate against minority voters. Nobody gets up on the floor and says that. So what the Voting Rights Act assumed was that, and uh, President Johnson assumed is that, is that legislators would be really, really subtle and, and things would look neutral, but they wouldn't be neutral. And the Voting Rights Act had these sections, section five in Shelby and section two here that, that stopped um, states in advance from doing this. And all of this now has been has been taken out in these two cases, which are kind of have to be seen together. So yeah, that's a great question. To that point, what teeth does the Voting Rights Act have anymore? Is there is it any or is it more just a, a shell that people can point to? Oh, that's such a sad question. Um I think for many people, uh, they called this the elegy to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Voting Rights Act is one of the most successful pieces of legislation and ambitious. I think people forget that Johnson was only able to pass the Civil Rights Act in 1964 by taking out voting. <laughs> that's I mean, that's mind boggling, but it's true. And he, he passed this separately in 65. Uh, what's left? Well, uh, if the uh, impact was greater. It is possible that you could get the six justices, the six conservative justices, to agree. So if it's if it's wildly disproportionate, uh, and I think Kagan thinks this was wildly disproportionate, that I think that it's not all legislation will get through, but most legislation will get through. So I think it is pretty it is pretty gutted. Talk to me a little bit about the state of voting rights overall since twenty twenty. We have seen a lot of headlines about voting restrictions, new voting laws, new procedures all being put in place. Can you kind of help us separate the the noise from what's really happening on the ground? Because a lot of this stuff is presented as, you know, State X has proposed 15 new voting new voting legislation that would do 15 things to restrict voting. But it's only been proposed. It doesn't even make it out of committee. But I think the average person just sees the headline and thinks that this is changing all over the place. Can you kind of give us the state of what we're seeing now as far as voting rights? Yeah, Matt, both is true. So you're absolutely right. A lot of it is noise because any legislator can put forth a bill and you can say that 300 of them have been proposed. But what's more important is the ones that have already passed. And this year alone, 14 states have changed 
their voting laws to restrict voting. So those are are laws that have passed. The Brennan Center for Justice, which tracks this stuff, has said this is the worst year they've ever seen. The last one was 2011. So I I think what we will see is many states, Pennsylvania did it. Uh, uh, Wolf has threatened to, to veto the Pennsylvania Voting Rights Protection Act. And it's hard because all of these are a mix. So the new law in Pennsylvania it does make law uh, uh, voting a little bit easier for disabled people, for example, and it and it does make some good changes in terms of when you have to register to vote. On the other hand, it restricts voting by requiring county issued IDs, restricting mail in, limiting drop back drop box times, and so these are they're complicated. But I think what we see general trend is small cuts. Death by death by a hundred cuts, thousand cuts, and and I think that's what we're seeing across the country in many states. In other states, we're seeing expansions of the of, of voting because this all depends on who controls the state legislatures. Democrats are pushing expansive voting. Republicans are pushing more limited voting. And it's interesting to me because in a lot of places, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like in Georgia, which is one of the first states. Um, there was a lot of argument on the Republican side or claims of fraud on the Republican side about the vote by mail. But vote by mail had been there for a while, and it only became a concern that when the Democrats won the state. So, it, I mean, if you're not used to hypocrisy in politics by now, I don't know what to tell you. But th- this just seems so blatantly that all it takes is a Google search and a point to this was your idea. And, you know, same thing. in wasn't Pennsylvania, the Republican legislature. It uh, was pushed for vote by mail until the Democrats won. And then it was a problem. 2019, the Republicans and the Democrats did a good job in Pennsylvania in a bipartisan way. Look, I would be even more cynical maybe than you've just been. Trump started tweeting in May of last year that mail-in voting would lead to massive fraud, big capital letters in a tweet. And he said it would be the end of the Republican Party. And he said that if we allow mail-in, this would benefit the Democrats. Now, that's not actually true. Political scientists have been looking at this for a long time. White people, Asian people, Republican people, older people actually love mail-in votes. So it's it was odd to hear all of this. But in the context of COVID and the push on the part of the Democrats to say, don't go to the polls, please use mail-in, somehow this turned into a narrative that really there's so much political science data behind this. There is no fraud. So it's kind of a combination of this, an element of the big lie of pushing out information that makes voters feel a lack of confidence. And we know that it's worked because if we look at public opinion now, we can see that Republican voters do not all believe that Joe Biden was elected and is the legitimate president of the United States. And a lot of this, you hear a lot of very uh, specifically chosen language with legislators saying, well, we've got a lot of uh, claims of fraud. Now, anyone can claim fraud, and it kind of becomes this circle where this person claims fraud, this legislature says, well, this person says it, so we have to invest. And it just becomes this self-fulfilling circle, which is kind of what you're talking about. 
Now, I think we're, I don't think this is just about voting. We are definitely in a moment in which things are repeated on social media enough times that they permeate. And when responsible leaders, not just President Trump, but the leaders of the Republican Party repeat those claims of fraud. Actually, one of the things that upset me most about reading this decision is that Alito himself repeats this claim about fraud. There was no evidence of fraud in Arizona There is never in the entire history of the mail-in voting for Native American peoples, there's been no zero um, claim of fraud. So it's a red herring. um, And for whatever reason, this has become part of a narrative. It's an odd narrative because voting is not usually top of mind issue for for voters, but Democrats are, are trying to make an issue. I think we saw that when the president came to Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago that that is can you make voting an issue? Can you tell the American people, we want you to vote, we are the party of voting? And the Republicans are saying, we're the party of voting too, we just want less fraud. And in closing down on things that are known to depress voting, um, they think that they will have an advantage. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous game. So we've heard a lot of talk on the federal level of legislation to try to take on uh, a lot of these changes these states are making, good faith, bad faith, what have you. Uh, What do you feel is the state of play? Will we see something on the federal level? Uh, Will it require doing something with the filibuster because the chances of getting 10 Republicans on board, it would seem remote. How do you see this playing out? Well, there's two. One thing is on the table, which is H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which is an an 800 page uh, ambitious structural change piece of legislation that the Democrats put together in 2018. And they never meant for this to be a bill. This was a messenger bill. This was this wasn't about passage. It was about making a statement about what Democrats stood for against Republicans. It's now actually become a bill that people are talking about passing. It has three main parts. It makes things easier to vote. Uh, it it votes, it counts people's votes more equally, gets rid of gerrymandering, reduces gerrymandering, and it amplifies small donations and discourages big donors and dark money. It's 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 a, a huge structural change. And it's not going to pass, as you say. Uh, the Democrats would need 10. Well, first of all, Joe Manchin won't even vote for it. So they can't, they can't even hold their own party on this, and they don't even have one Republican vote. What they could do, and I think you were alluding to this, is you can suspend the filibuster for a particular topic. The Republicans did this to get Neil Gorsuch on the court when Obama had the right to appoint somebody and didn't get it. Uh, So the Democrats could be very, very risky. And I don't think Joe Manchin would go along with this. They could say, we're making an exception for uh, protecting the vote. So I I don't think it's going to happen, but that's what could happen. And then there's one other piece of legislation that's out there, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, and, And that's far less ambitious. What it tries to do is what you referred to earlier. It tries to put the teeth back in the Voting Rights Act from what was taken out by the Supreme Court in Shelby. Uh, But only Lisa Mikulski, the senator from Alaska, has said she would vote for it. Uh, So again, that's not one that, uh, although it's so far, it's it's, it's really a pretty mild bill and it's not as ambitious. It doesn't touch gerrymandering or campaign contributions. It focuses on just clearing your changes with the federal government. So in Arizona, they would have just had to have 
told the federal government, here's what we're doing. And then the federal government could have said, you can't do that. Native American rights would be affected too much. So it it stops the train from leaving the station before it has speed. Whereas now it leaves the station and you kind of have to catch up with the train. So that was the hope of um, John Lewis. And the biggest concern with all these changes, is it just putting up, you know, for somebody to get to the voting, to cast their vote from A to B, is it just all these changes put up these little hurdles along the way? You know, it's not basically saying you can't vote. It's just forcing you to kind of contort yourself in a million ways. You only maybe got to take two hours off work and you got to make this. And maybe before your mom dropped it off, now you can't have that. All these little things that may, maybe people just say, you know what? I got to work two double shifts this week. I don't have time for this. And is that really the concern? Is that that's how this will affect things? That's basically it. Uh, so small changes have always made a difference. And and when Kagan goes through her history, you know, she points out they used to to shut the polls at five o'clock to keep Irish voters out. Like we have a long history in the United States of figuring out who we don't want to vote and shutting things down to make it inconvenient for them. So this is not just black, white. This is a multiracial, multiethnic, long history. Um, we know that certain laws, uh, there's a MIT election data and science lab, great website if anybody wants to look at it. And they show how things like photo IDs have a disparate effect on racial minorities. And it's not just the law, it's the implementation. It's more like, oh, you don't have your ID? That's fine. You're a nice white lady, but I'm going to check the IDs of every single Black or Latinx person who comes in here. That those two things are really, really important. Um, the law itself and then how it's implemented. But look, what Alito said was, these things are facially neutral. They're neutral. They are, but they're not. And actually, um, if, if you'll indulge me, Elena Kagan was saying in her opinion, you know, we think about voting in private in the booth as like a great innovation. And Alito actually mentions it in his dissent. But, but at the time, it was designed to flummox Black voters. And she actually quotes this 1892 Arkansas song, which I won't repeat because of the language that says, you know, when a blank gets a ballot, he certainly got his match because he's in the booth. And he he if he has trouble reading, he won't be able to ask anybody. So things that we think of as really neutral, they were designed to confuse and and, and limit some people's access. All this being said. Is there the possibility that because there is this outsized argument and all this attention on this, that a lot of people that maybe would have said, you know what, I I can't be bothered, I and not in a bad faith way, just like I don't have time for this, get riled up and like, listen, I'm voting whether you like it or not, and I'm going to find a way. Could we see that, uh, you know, in 22 and 24? I don't think anyone knows, but that is the question that everybody is asking. So as I said before, voting is never top of mind, although it was in 1965 when people, and it was certainly top of mind for John Lewis when he was having his head beaten in. So we have had moments in which we care a lot about voting law. Right now, I think the Democrats are 
you know, it's a gamble on both sides as to whether they can motivate their base by saying, look at these discriminatory laws, you get out there anyway. And I think we saw a little bit of that in Georgia. And, uh, and so, you know, the question is, how many resources will people stay on this uh, when we're not in a COVID world and when we don't have Donald Trump, perhaps, as somebody who is motivating uh, the core of the Democratic Party and some independents to, to get out and do something. But I, I, I do think, Matt, that's the, uh, the, the president is trying to use the bully pulpit, and that's what he tried to do in Philly, to say, we're all about democracy and you have to care about this. But that's about all he can do, except for asking Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to do more, which is something that he's asking. Congress can't do anything unless they change the filibuster. And this really leaves the argument to the states. And I think the Democrats, if they want this to change, they will have to change state legislatures. And that is something they have not done well. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.